0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hello, listeners. This is Tim from The Good GP. Sean and I would like to announce two exciting changes to the podcast. Firstly, we're thrilled to welcome a new host, Dr. Christina Delonge. Christina has previously been a guest on the podcast, and she's got an interest in women's and children's health. Secondly, The Good GP will be presenting a live session at the GP19 conference in Adelaide. If you're interested in coming, we're going to be recording on Friday, the 25th of October at 1.45 in the afternoon. Feel free to come along, have a chat with us. We'd really love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today we're recording part two of a series on irritable infants, so I'd like to welcome back Christina Delange. Welcome, Christina.
0: Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for having me back.
1: Now, Christina, this episode's on the management of the irritable infant. As a GP, I guess I've been managing irritable infants for the past 20 years. I've observed a lot of changes over the course of my career, but let's go back through the historical treatments. What have historical treatments for irritability in infancy been.
0: Yeah so look if we look back through history I think what becomes quite obvious is that crying babies certainly isn't a new thing. Babies have always cried a lot and there's certainly always been a strong disposition to trying to treat this and I think honestly this comes from a really a deep yearning to help these families. You know a mum comes in and they're distressed and got a baby who's crying excessively and maybe not coping well and they're not sure to turn. We have that immediate desire to want to help and try and reduce that so part of that then comes with giving a reason for it and trying to give a solution that they can cling to and certainly that's reflected through history when managing babies that are crying there's sort of been this age-old practice of drugging infants so it yeah. <laughs> sounds scary but, but history would show us that we tend to throw drugs at these babies there's some documentation of opium being used to help soothe crying babies we've used alcohol at times sedative medications have been given move through to like anti-spasm sort of medications when the focus started to become onto the gut. There's been herbal and homeopathic treatments, alternative therapies, acupuncture and chiropractic treatments. And then certainly we know that there's any flavor of the month, depending on what diagnosis is currently being thrown around, whether it's colic or reflux or allergy, the management tends to be targeted towards that. So certainly, yeah, there's a lot of history of trying to help in these situations.
1: You know, My observation of the history was that alcohol was the go to for, for decades is it sort of mind-boggling how how long it was used i mean gripe water was alcoholic up until a few decades ago mm. that's the history and as you say more recently there is this focus on the gut and i, I guess that brings us to my next question Where does colic and reflux fit into the picture of of managing an irritable infant?
0: If we think about what actually is colic, I mean, we know as doctors like that term is sort of used for spasming in a hollow organ. So we think of it when we think of renal colic, cubillary colic. And certainly when colic first started getting applied to babies and crying, then there was some thought around the fact that maybe there was cramping in the intestine and that's what's causing the crying. In the 1950s, though, we got this Wessel criteria named after the doctor that came up with it. And he defined the colicky baby as a baby that cried for more than three hours a day, more than three days a week, and for more than three weeks. And that was actually the definition of colic. So it had nothing to do with what was causing the crying. It was purely a definition of duration. So the term colic is really just, as that actual definition of colic, is really just arbitrarily defining the upper end of the crying spectrum. It's not actually talking about a cause and it doesn't actually mean that there's a gastrointestinal cause. But it's this obsession with the gut, I think it really has continued. And I I think it's kind of understandable why bouts of crying in babies will often be accompanied by things that suggest that they're in pain in their gut. They've got that pain-like face, they go red, they clench their fists, you know, they draw up their legs and they they pass wind or they burp. I think it's really easy for the parent to see that and then to make that link. The crying has to be from pain. But actually, it's not necessarily the case. We know infants display those signs when there's not pain. We know they display those signs when there's activation of the sympathetic nervous system. We know that the sympathetic nervous system activation can actually cause a gut event itself. And we know that increased abdominal pressure, you know, intra-abdominal pressure from the crying can cause a gut event. So if you have a baby that wakes up. and their sympathetic nervous system is activating, they're crying, there's pressure in their abdomen is increasing and then if there's a bit of wind sitting there or a bit of poo or a bit of milk in their tummy, then that's going to come out. So they will, they'll fart or they'll do a poo or they'll, they'll posit. But it's not necessarily the gut causing the pain, potentially the crying itself, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system That though can cause the gut event and I guess that's an important concept to understand and to be able to reassure families about. Certainly a lot of families will report using over-the-counter colic remedies so they're generally targeted the gut so simethicone. it's not been shown to be any better than placebo when it comes to a crying baby burping i always mention burping because burping and crying and colic kind of go hand in hand that whole colic equals wind pain thing and you know if i don't burp the baby then they're going to get wind pain and there's certainly a lot of education for parents about burping their babies but i'm actually going to put it out there that we don't have to actively burp a baby which is shock horror to some (laughs) of our listeners potentially burping is actually something that's relatively new concept. It's certainly not something that's practiced across all cultures. And there's actually no evidence to say that we have to actively burp a baby. It doesn't mean that they're not going to burp because we all know they do. And we know that sometimes they can be damn impressive, but it doesn't mean that we have to do anything to actually make them burp. So they will burp regardless of what positioning or what we do with them whether they're bottle fed or whether they're breastfed they might swallow a little bit of air and that's going to come back up as a burp I just say to families you put them into whatever position is comfortable after a feed whether that's sort of laying across their lap whether it's up on your chest whatever it is that's fine and the burp will come I do try to discourage that banging on the back if you want to rub their back or whatever that's fine but I do discourage that typical burping position that you'll see the baby sort of away from the caregiver's body fairly unsupported just held Sort of under the chin and then the other hand banging on the back. It's not a comfortable position for them. They're quite unsupported and they don't generally often don't like it. So I do discourage it. You'll notice that they don't like it. So they cry and then that's reinforcing that they need to burp for the parent. They interpret that as mm. needing to burp. The other thing is that I really try and say this to families because sometimes it can really interrupt sleep at night. So parents will be quite obsessed with getting this burp up before they put them back down because they're worried if they don't, then they're going to wake up with the wind pain. Babies will have this beautiful meal-inducing sleepiness, you know, that postprandial little kip. So they'll wake up in the night, they'll feed, they'll be feeding back to sleep. But then mum goes, I can't actually let them sleep. I've got to quickly try and burp them and get that up. And so we can really disrupt that night time by trying to burp. We can reassure parents about the whole farting thing because I think that's where the burping comes from. Parents get worried that if they don't burp them, it'll pass through the gut and cause the fart. But actually, it's not necessarily the case. The wind that's created in the gut is actually created there, that fermentation process in the gut. It's not because of swallowed air passing all the way through the intestine and then causing wind pain. So yes, so that's important and a little thing that I really like to educate parents about because I think it can be quite powerful. From a reflux perspective, this is everywhere. Like the diagnosis spread like wildfire. I think as a profession, your doctors are starting to come round to the fact that we've probably overdiagnosed it, there's evidence PPIs aren't, aren't any better than placebo, really, that in trying to reduce crying. The downstream effects of this overdiagnosis though is still very widespread. I mean if you go along to a mum's group, if you jump onto an online forum, listen to advice that's being given out there, you're still going to hear that reflux diagnosis getting thrown around. In terms of why we don't really think it's a problem in the early months. So there's evidence to suggest that milk reflux is essentially pH neutral for a couple of hours after a feed. So when stomach contents regurgitate up into the esophagus, that reflux material is going to be pH neutral, not actually acidic. And so it's not going to be causing pain. It's not going to be causing damage. Essentially, the acidity of the stomach is going to be buffered by the milk. And that's regardless of whether it's breast milk or formula. And that's a really big aha moment for the parents, I think, when you actually explain that. So as long as the baby's under four months, we're not talking about the older baby that's having a broad range of other solids and is could potentially be then having acidic reflux. But if the baby's under four months, if they're exclusively having formula or breast milk, which they should be, because that's what the feeding guidelines say. And as long as the family's not trying to stretch out feeds, and that's important because some families will, they'll get advice about maybe if you stretch out the feed, if you wait four hours, maybe they're feeding too frequently. The only problem is, is that the longer you wait, the more chance that that reflux material is going to become acidic, so actually you don't want to encourage them to stretch out feeds purposefully, then we can reassure in these situations that reflux isn't going to be a problem and PPIs actually aren't going to be effective. The same is the same theory for silent reflux, that idea of regurgitating something up into the esophagus and swallowing it, but not actually bringing it all the way up. Same theory. From the vomiting itself, people get really worried about the vomiting. Again, a lot of reassurance here. We know it's really common. Two-thirds of babies will vomit quite regularly it does settle down over that first year of life i don't want to take away from how annoying it is it's smelly and it gets all over your clothing and you've got to change five times a day but it's certainly not anything that requires intervention as long as and again we touched on this last time about ruling out medical things but as long as we're not missing the pyloric stenosis or a meningitis or something as a cause for the vomiting certainly neurological conditions that might cause reduced tone or even f pies the food protein induced enteropathy we don't don't want to be missing some of these things, but certainly if the baby's gaining weight, there's no undiagnosed feeding issues. We can generally reassure about vomiting and about reflux.
1: That's fantastic. I mean, the regurgitation component is is often very difficult to unpack because it's as you say, it can be quite distressing for parents to watch it happen. They, they think about it in relation to how they'd feel themselves if they were vomiting that much, and they assume that the baby's quite distressed. But a lot of babies are quite comfortable, happy chuckers. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't need to be medicalised, provided we've we've gone through that medical exclusion process
0: yeah that's right you know because a lot of families will say oh my baby has reflux my baby has reflux and i'll say yes they do but they don't have gastroesophageal reflux disease reflux in the sense that yes your baby is bringing back up some of the contents after a feed but it's not actually causing damage and it's not going to be causing pain
1: Mm. you touched on the idea of food intolerances what role does feeding formula food and food intolerance play in uh, managing an irritable infection
0: yeah so look i think feeding as a concept like As an overall topic, I actually think it does have a huge role in crying babies, potentially not in where you were alluding to with all the intolerances and things, but certainly undiagnosed feeding problems are a huge contribution to crying babies, whether they're fed at the bottle or at the breast. It's a really common story for parents who present with a crying baby. They'll often describe symptoms of distress around feed time as well. They might report back arching. The baby might pull away from the breast. They might turn their head. They might have difficulty Orientating or coming on, or they might get cry or get distressed with the feet. And those symptoms are often attributed to things like reflux, and they're often attributed to, again, a gut cause for the crying, you know, that there's been a painful experience. They think that, or the baby must be getting worked up because of that painful experience, and now they associate the feet with that. The most common thing that by far that I encounter though with these babies isn't actually reflux or colic, but it's actually a condition dialing up at the breast. And I touched on this a little bit in the last episode about how for some babies, Babies, their sympathetic nervous system can just go into overdrive and get dialed up after a sensitizing event. So if you imagine challenging start, maybe mum who's been told their baby isn't putting on enough weight, or maybe a mum that's fretting a bit that she has to stick to some really strict schedule for the feeds. Maybe it's a baby that's got suboptimal attachment or positional instability with the feeds. They can become an element of force to the feeds. As a mum, it's our job. Yeah. It's, it's our main job, isn't it, in those early days is to feed our baby. And so we need to make sure they're putting on weight and we need to make sure they're healthy. So sometimes when one of these things isn't working, we get into that automatic, I have to make sure they're feeding now. I got told it has to be 20 minutes. So I have to keep them on, have to make sure they come to both sides. If it's a bottle, then it will be the formula packet says it has to be Mm. this amount of formula. So I have to make sure they finish that bottle. Whenever there's been some force or positional issues, then it's not uncommon for those babies to start associating the breast or the bottle with that negative experience. And they do, they start to exhibit but all of those symptoms, back arching and the pulling off and the getting distressed. And it's really that activation of the sympathetic nervous system, that baby going into that flight or fight mode that is causing that, not necessarily the reflux or whatever else it might be. I do think that feeding issues can actually play a huge role from the perspective of food intolerance or allergies though. You know, I think that allergy, is definitely gaining traction. It's been around for a long time, but I feel like there's a run of it at the moment. I don't know what your experiences is, but there seems to be a lot of mums coming in on elimination diets, or babies are being tried on different formulas to try and combat this crying period. Certainly, allergies are a very real thing, and I'm certainly not here to dismiss that. We know that I think it's dairy, soy, and egg are probably the most common allergens, and we certainly know that babies are going to be allergic to this, but. I think, again, in this sort of desperation to give babies an answer and a solution, we can end up over-diagnosing allergy as a cause for unsettled behaviour. I think when we should be thinking about allergy, like certainly if you've got symptoms of an immediate IgE-mediated reaction, babies given cow's milk-based infant formula and they come out in hives or they have gastrointestinal respiratory involvement with that, then definitely we're thinking about allergy and we're taking all the appropriate steps. We certainly need to be on the alert for, thankfully, not a very common condition but quite serious f-pies which is that sort of immune mediated adverse event in that first couple of hours after introduction of a food we know that cow's milk is one of the common triggers for that so we want to be conscious of that if there's blood in the stool then we want to be considering an allergic colitis and we we want to be considering all the causes of for pr bleeding but certainly that dairy exclusion may be required in that situation so definitely whenever there's objective signs here whenever there's objective signs of allergy or any of these things we should be very much thinking about that and I would really encourage people to get onto the ASCIA website it's a fantastic resource and has great resources for health professionals and for patients when navigating this but I think where allergy potentially can get overdiagnosed is the baby that comes in with the excessive crime but none of those other signs and there's no signs of A to P, there's no family history of allergy, there's no eczema, there's no objective sign of allergy. Comes back to that desperation to give them an answer and so we say maybe it's allergy. Mums will get advised to go on elimination diets and they can be quite full on. Actually elimination diets are rarely required. If a baby that's on formula changing over to extensively hydrolyzed formula may be required but from an elimination diet perspective, they're not actually commonly required. You'll find a lot of anecdote about it being helpful, but we have to be really careful not to confuse anecdote with good quality evidence. You need to be mindful of all of those other things that contribute to feeling like you get a response to that intervention. We know that there's going to be some placebo effect. And we also know that the passage of time is going to have a significant effect for these families. So mum's going to get told that she needs to eliminate a food for three weeks in order to see effects. So they come in around that sort of eight week mark. Mum gets told cut out dairy wait three weeks, see if there's a response. They come back around 11, 12 weeks. Now we know from that population data that that baby's crying is going to reduce significantly by that time, potentially half in that time. So when mum comes back, lo and behold, that's what she's going to tell us. She's going to say, yeah, you know, over the couple of weeks that I did this, I really started to see some effect. So when we combine that power of placebo and a bit of passage of time, people will report that elimination diets will be effective. And unfortunately, it's reinforcing for the family, but it's also reinforcing for the health professional who prescribed it because they go, oh gosh, that worked for that family. Next family that comes in with an unsettled baby, you know what, I'll probably just do the same thing. So I think we do have to be a little bit careful there. I think we also have to be careful not to inadvertently increase a baby's risk of allergy down the track. I mean, the advice from ASKIA certainly is to try and have early introduction of allergenic foods. So if we misdiagnose a dairy allergy, for example, and then you know tell them to not introduce it for over that first year of life we actually may inadvertently increase their risk of developing a true allergy so yeah we need to be conscious of allergy it certainly is a thing but just being careful not to over diagnose it
1: yeah it's a tough one between that sort of medicalization of it and making sure that you don't miss anything that's right finally christina what's your approach to a good consultation for managing an irritable infant and their family and perhaps what are the really good resources available for gps to use
0: Yeah, well, look, I think first and foremostly, my number one priority is really giving these families time. I preferentially would have an hour appointment for these mums and babies. Billing wise, you can split it up between the mother and the baby, 30-30 minutes split. Considering having a longer appointment at that one and six week check so that you can go through some of these issues that might be brewing. And if a family does come in and they've only got that short appointment booked, then really trying to safety net, ensure there's no acute sort of medical issue and then getting them back for a longer appointment so that you can go through it. I mentioned in the last episode, that really thorough assessment, making sure that we're not missing any sort of underlying medical issues using that sort of five domain approach to really unpack what's going on. I will generally spend a bit of time educating and talking through any of the diagnoses that might be coming up. So the family that does come in concerned about reflux or about colic, I don't dismiss that and just say, oh, it's not that we don't use PPIs anymore. I do really try and explain in layman's terms, the actual reasoning behind that and some of the evidence behind that. Once I've reassured them about that, then I really go back to that five domain approach and I work through that from a management perspective you know a lot of these families will need quite intensive feeding support and I think that's important to acknowledge that not just for breastfeeding mothers but families who are using the bottle sometimes they will need help with position and the technique of feeding with the bottle they may need some help with sleep I'm not talking about sleep training a a little baby but education about what's normal sleep and some of the things that we can do to try and optimize sleep I always talk to families about having two tools, for practical tools for managing a crying baby. One is a feed because a baby will often cry when they're hungry. And a lot of mums will say that a feed that bringing them to the breast or the bottle can actually be relaxing for them and calm them down. And the other is a sensory change. So a baby that's really dialing up, you know, if they're lying down, if they're on the change table in the cot, you want to pick them up and hold them. If the baby, if you're still, you want to move. If it's quiet, make some noise. If you're inside, get outside. You know, I think that's actually one of the most powerful things and I sometimes do this in clinic. The mum will be like, see, this is what it's like. The baby will be crying, they'll be really dialed up and I'll just invite them and just say, oh, let's just step outside of the clinic for a second and we just walk outside and there'll be bustling cars going past or whatever and the baby will often dial down. It's just that change in that sensory environment which can actually be really powerful and I think can be really underestimated. I think making sure that we're giving these families a lot of support, really encouraging mums and dads to get out to schedule an enjoyable activity for themselves spend some time at the start of the week thinking about right Monday I'm going to go out for a coffee Tuesday I'm going to go for a walk you want to be encouraging them to actually schedule in enjoyable things for them getting them outside of the house and then let the baby come along for the ride put them in the carrier put them in the pram having a a list of good activities for mums in the area good support groups mental health support groups if that's an issue mums groups song and sensory type stuff exercise stuff for mum if she's into that whatever it might be but making sure that you're giving that support for the whole family. Yeah, so I guess that's my approach to managing it in a nutshell.
1: That's fantastic, Christina. It's a very holistic approach, and I think that fits with the whole picture of what we've talked about, that it's not simply a, a medical problem, but it's a child and mother and, and family Uh opportunity and perhaps the chance to to take something that's sort of causing a lot of distress and turn it into a positive thing in in people's lives
0: yeah that's right
1: christina thank you so much for spending time talking to us today and that's the end of the podcast
0: thanks so much tim